This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit AmericanVision.org to purchase this book or to read other articles. The Bounds of Love An Introduction to God's Law of Liberty by Dr. Joel McDermott Copyright 2016 Published by American Vision Incorporated Chapter 7 What is Not Theonomy Students of theonomy need to be aware that there is more than one distinct group of believers who use the label, quote, theonomy, unquote, and that although they share some aspects in common, there are critical distinctives which make broad and important differences, for example, between liberty and death. I would like to draw the most important of these distinctives for you in this chapter. These differences exist for more than one reason. They have arisen partly because theonomic writers since have often not thoroughly engaged important Old Testament passages to exhaust some of their most pressing questions. In some cases, writers have not addressed them at all, and in others have addressed them in a clumsy or inadequate way. In the light of calls for a return to Old Testament law in general, this predictably, though unfortunately, led to some writers and readers assuming that death penalties for things like blasphemy and apostasy carry into New Testament times without much thoughtful analysis or exegesis. Furthering this assumption has been the fact that all the Reformers and their followers, along with many prominent ancient and medieval theologians, assumed the civil government had the duty to punish first-table offenses and thus, quote, theonomy, unquote, was seen by some merely as a return to the older standards that were once prevalent throughout Christendom. As we will see, however, calling this view, quote, theonomy, unquote, is inaccurate and causes confusion. Finally, there are contemporary movements that, in my opinion, romanticize the Westminster divines, selectively anyway. Scottish Covenanters, certain Puritans, Southern Presbyterians, or others. I consider these groups as often consumed with little more than a kind of historical reenactment and role-playing acting out the dreams of alleged good old days, most of which never really existed anyway. As a result of their zeal for certain historical figures or eras, these guys are rich in historical knowledge and we can learn much from their work. I have. But they seem blinded to the great flaws that beset even the greatest men and documents of those times. We could probably make several classifications of theonomic writers, but for the purposes of this chapter, I see only two necessary ones. The first is the view outlined in this book. I would call it simply theonomy. It is based on exegesis of Scripture and reflects God's law in its entirety as it abides in the New Testament administration. The second view encompasses all the other views mentioned above, for they mostly partake of one key, and in my opinion, dangerous error. I will call this error, quote, Constantinianism, unquote, although we could just as accurately call it Romanism or humanism. It often resorts to man-made laws based upon man's interpretations of so-called, quote, natural law, unquote, often openly denies the obligatory nature of Old Testament judicial laws, and yet still often desires to have the label, quote, theonomy, unquote, for itself. We have already made the case for theonomy according to the Bible and the enduring nature of the penal sanctions, etc. 
Here we need to delineate the position in contrast to these later attempts at modern covenanting, etc., which are not really theonomy in the biblical sense and cannot, in my opinion, claim to represent it. Toward this end, we need to rehearse the historical pedigree of the error of which I speak. The Great Persecution and the Great Shift Constantine himself was not as strident in defense of Christianity as some have supposed, but he did begin the establishment of Christianity as a state church. He did outlaw some forms of heresy, and he did assign the punishment of death to some religious offenses. He still allowed forms of pagan worship to continue, but gradually moved against them toward the end of his life. By establishing Christianity, however, he fused Christian ethics with the practices and ethics of Roman law. This would have a lasting effect upon Christians until the times of the English and American revolutions. It was Constantine's contribution to take the classical pagan Roman law behind emperor worship and reapply it as state-enforced Christianity. The Caesars had practiced emperor worship. They allowed most other sects and cults to flourish under the aegis of the Roman Empire as long as they, in most cases, would simply admit Caesar is Lord. This was a religious confession. Caesar was considered a son of the gods and while on earth was the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of his people. When a Roman emperor died, the Senate would proclaim him deified, ascended to the abode of the other gods. When Christians refused the imperial cult and also refused to pay homage to any of the various pagan gods, the Romans acknowledged they were accused of, quote, atheism, unquote, and given the standard Roman penalty for sacrilege, death. Christians found reprieve under some later Roman rulers, but in the late 3rd century, Diocletian embarked on a campaign to restore the empire to its former glory. This included a renewed emphasis upon the classic Roman religion and a propaganda campaign against Christians, the, quote, atheist, unquote, whom Romans traditionally blame for all of Rome's major ills. This campaign was used to justify a great persecution of Christians. His edict in A.D. 303 demanded the destruction and burning of churches, confiscation and burning of Bibles, confiscation of all church wealth by the state, and a prohibition on Christian assemblies. Executions followed. The persecution was even more vigorously taken up the following year by the successor, Galerius. Further edicts demanded that Christians could be arrested and forced to sacrifice to the Roman gods upon pain of death. The persecution, however, did little to eradicate the Christians as he had hoped, and in fact only strengthened their resolve. They actually grew in number. After seven years of senseless bloodshed, Galerius was forced to admit failure and rescind the edicts. It would be the last great persecution of Christians by Romans, and the Christians had not only outlasted it, they grew stronger from it. Even the agnostic author Will Durant recognized the import of what had occurred. Of the end of the Galilean persecution, he wrote, There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians, scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. 
Caesar had met Christ in the arena, and Christ had won. Caesar may have been broken, but his spirit was still around. Constantine had been acknowledged a co-emperor in 306 and soon solidified his rule. Having recently been influenced by Christianity, he announced the Edict of Milan in 313, generalizing Roman religion and allowing Christianity, along with many other religions, religious liberty. But it was a compromised liberty. Constantine maintained the title Pontifex Maximus and apparently still entertained the Son of God's status as well. For the Senate apotheosized him later at his death. As a self-conscious high priest, however, the emperor thought he had to maintain the purity of religion in the empire. So he superintended the controversies of the church. The Donatist controversy and the later Arian heresy with increasing vigor. He ruled in favor of the establishment, bishops and others who had bowed to emperor worship under Diocletian and Galerius in order to save their necks. The Donatists who opposed this were declared in error by the state. When they persisted, Constantine published edicts demanding Donatist churches to be confiscated. Those who continued to create disturbance of the peace would be liable to exile or death. In the later case of Arius, Constantine declared that their churches and possessions could be seized and that their books must be burned. Any official cult hiding or protecting Arian literature would be given the death penalty. Constantine's contributions did not result in mass persecution and extermination of heretics, apostates, or pagans. But what he did was set a precedent that future rulers would expand and abuse. For our purposes, the most important aspect is that in all of this he never had recourse to biblical law. It was the farthest thing from his mind. What he actually did, as we said, is take the imperial cult and the regulations of Roman law and baptize them in favor of an official Christianity. In fact, the Enlightenment historian Edward Gibbon claims that some of Constantine's legislation simply copied the edicts of Diocletian and just replaced the names of who would get the fire. Whether Constantine did this self-consciously or not is not clear but the effect is. After Constantine, yes, it gets worse. Those who followed Constantine intensified his laws. During his reign, many of the bishops developed a taste for power and wanted more. Some, for example, Lactantius, flip-flopped immediately on the death penalty. An outspoken critic before, the spiritual counselor to the emperor himself suddenly hailed his master's duty to exact vengeance on the wicked. Within a generation of Constantine, some of the establishment bishops were calling for the power of the state to purge all heresies. Constantine's limited abuse was on its way to becoming a universal rule. As early A.D. 346, Julius Firmicus Maternus rose to preeminence as an apologist urging Constantinus II to destroy utterly all idolatry in pagan temples and he would be answered. You can set the demands of Diocletian's persecution of Christians side by side with some of those from Constantine, but especially Constantius II, Theodosius, and Justinian after him. And see that the only difference is that the roles were reversed. Instead of Christians, 
heretics, and some pagans got the ire of the Roman state. Justinian Emperor Justinian collected, systematized, and recodified all the laws of these Christian emperors before him. His collection is known as the Corpus Iuris Civilis, body of civil law, and the heart of it was the twelve tables of the Codex Iustinianus, or Justinian Code. Under Justinian's code, all heretics were to be suppressed, their buildings taken from them, and their books banned, confiscated, and burned. If they met in private houses, their houses would be confiscated and given to the Catholic Church. Teachers of false doctrines were given the death penalty. One important law, as we shall see later, specifically aimed at the enduring Donatist decree that anyone merely rebaptizing a person and the one inducing him to do so would receive the death penalty. There were many other religious-oriented death penalties under Justinian's restoration of the Christian Roman Empire. Attempting to marry a nun was punishable by death. So was interfering with the church service, a direct carryover from pagan Rome. Jews or pagans were forbidden to proselytize upon pain of death by burning. Jews or pagans could not own Christians as slaves, and if they did, they were liable to capital punishment. If a slave owned by a pagan or Jew converted to Christianity, he was set free. If the pagan or Jewish master attempted to sway the slave from his new conversion, the master could receive capital punishment. Existing synagogues were allowed to remain, but building a new one was an offense punishable by death. All pagan temples were ordered closed. Anyone conducting pagan worship services would receive, quote, the extreme penalty, unquote, death by the sword. His property would be confiscated, his heirs disinherited, and the property given to the church. This Constantinian precedent endured right into the Middle Ages. In the early 800s, Emperor Leo V's administration led a purge of the heretical sect of Paulicians, allegedly killing up to 100,000. Again, these laws were nothing more than an exact parallel of what Romans had always done to those who committed sacrilege against Rome. Not a bit of this was done based on Mosaic law, but on carryovers from pagan Roman law. Mosaic law is not referenced, not required, not in mind, and often repudiated and violated in practice. Thomas Aquinas After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the direct use of Roman law waned. Throughout Europe, civil laws were a mix of local, tribal laws, and Roman law. In 1070, however, a copy of Justinian's Code was discovered in Bologna. This coincided with the rise of the papacy to its medieval height, and a legal revolution was born. Over the next several centuries, the Roman law was further developed. Universities appeared, and clerics were trained in both ecclesiastical, canon law, and civil law based once again upon Justinian. Throughout this period, the death penalty for certain religious offenses was derived from that same old Roman law. While there were debates, Thomas Aquinas stands a representative of the establishment view. Thomas called for the death penalty for first table offenses. He directly discussed heretics and called for their execution. In some cases, he argued, Unbelievers who have never been Christians should be tolerated. For example, when they are large in number and compulsion would cause social problems. 
In other cases, where possible, they should be compelled, quote, so that they do not hinder the faith by their blasphemies or by their evil persuasions, unquote. This could include warfare. Unbelievers, however, who had formerly been believers, heretics and apostates, should be subject to bodily compulsion, which, as we just read, includes death. Thomas even believed that if a man was considered, quote, dangerous and infectious to the community on account of some sin, unquote, not necessarily even a criminal per se, that man should be executed for the good of the community. This was a Roman idea of government mixed with Aristotelian notions as well. Again, Aquinas was following established Roman precedent, not biblical law. While he upheld these first table penalties, he made clear that he believed the Mosaic judicial law was no longer binding. His answer to the question of the duration of the judicial law seems to me to formalize what most theologians, including the Reformers, following him would repeat. He says that the ceremonial law is both, quote, dead, unquote, and, quote, deadly, unquote. It is dead in that it is no longer binding, but deadly because those who return to it in place of Christ are damning their souls. The judicial law is also dead, just not deadly. In other words, the judicial laws are no longer binding or necessary, but civil rulers would not be sinning if they choose to implement them freely at their own discretion and for their own purposes. They would be fine and not sinning as long as they did not say these laws were necessary because they were God's laws. For Aquinas, the Mosaic judicials had absolutely no binding character in the New Testament, and the New Testament prescribed, continued, absolutely nothing in regard to civil punishments. Thus, all judicial penalties, quote, are left to the decision of man, unquote. These decisions need not derive from the Bible, but from human expediency. He adds that such laws are, quote, not essential to virtue in respect of any particular determination, but only in regard to the common notion of justice, unquote. We will see Calvin appropriate this argument later. So as with Justinian, we have an odd combination of state-enforced religion upon pains of death, while at the same time a repudiation of the need for Mosaic judicial law. The difference is that Aquinas systematizes the Constantinian-Justinian program in concise form for future theologians. Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon The theologians of the Reformation generation were all trained in the same legal traditions that developed from the rediscovery of Justinian. Calvin and Luther, and Luther's colleague Philip Melanchthon, among many others, were all trained as lawyers in what had become known as the Eis Commune, or, quote, common law, unquote. Melanchthon wrote the seminal systematic theology of the Reformation, Loci communists are, quote, commonplaces, unquote, of theology. In it, he clearly denounced the need for Mosaic law, and in fact argued that even the Ten Commandments had been abrogated. Yet he also assumed Aquinas' argument that a magistrate could, if he wished, use Mosaic laws, but not as if they were of divine obligation. He went on to argue that civil law lies entirely outside the realm of Christian life, and anyone appealing to vengeance or litigation was not a Christian. Similar statements and views can be found in Luther as well. 
His vulgar denunciation of lawyers fills his early works. Quote, jurists are bad Christians, unquote. Quote, every jurist is an enemy of Christ, unquote. Such an attitude leaves the realm of law outside the constraints of revelation. Sure enough, this is where Melanchthon and Luther would reach, and the results were nearly blasphemous. Melanchthon loved Justinian's code so much he praised it as inspired of God. He admitted it was of, quote, heathen origin, unquote, yet went on to say that it contained laws that were, quote, the very voice of God, offered to the human race through wise rulers whose minds God ruled by a special inspiration so that they saw the sources of justice and showed them to others, unquote. No kidding. And he topped even that by stating that parts of that code could be considered, quote, a visible appearance of the Holy Spirit, unquote. Based on this Roman legal heritage, both Luther and Melanchthon and others in their circles in Wittenberg openly called for the death penalty for certain heretics, particularly Anabaptists. In fact, after their Augsburg confession was solidified, they began to urge their princes more and more to extirpate the dreaded rebaptizers. Anabaptists were derided equally by Roman Catholics and Protestants. Even when imperial talks between the two groups fell through, one thing they agreed upon was that Anabaptists should be stamped out. Thus, the Catholics reaffirmed Justinian's old death penalty for rebaptizers, originally created for Donatists at the Second Diet of Spire in 1529. Protestants picked up the idea immediately. Melanchthon and Luther began promoting it as early as 1530. When a particularly violent strain of Anabaptists overthrew the city of Munster, they grew even more vehement. Lutheran princes began regularly killing Anabaptists in 1536, with Melanchthon himself often involved in interrogations. In these cases, Melanchthon did mention the death penalty for blasphemy and Mosaic law, but it is clear he had to stretch the definition of, quote, blasphemy, unquote, to include Anabaptism's practices of private churches and rebaptism. But he was able to find clear license in his beloved Roman precedent founded in Justinian. Again, these measures came from the theologians who had repudiated any need for Moses yet assumed a Roman law standard for punishing religious offenses. Not only did they not really heed biblical law, this same Melanchthon is the guy who, in his Defense of the Augsburg Confession, 1531, penned that it was, in fact, quote, insane, unquote, to impose the judicial laws of Moses, John Calvin. John Calvin's views on this issue were a little different than those of his medieval predecessors, or his Lutheran contemporaries. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he both repudiates the necessity of Mosaic judicial laws and appeals to pagans as justification for punishing religious offenses. Critics of theonomy have often pointed out Calvin's views on the Mosaic judicials, and they are largely correct. Calvin wrote, There are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed which, neglecting the political system of Moses, is ruled by the common laws of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. Note briefly Calvin's default alternative, quote, the common law of nations, unquote, 
This is a reference to the Justinian tradition of Ice Commune, which had been passed down and in which he had been trained. Calvin then goes on to argue that the judicial laws of Moses were, quote, taken away, unquote, and thus, quote, surely every nation is left free to make such laws as it foresees to be profitable for itself, unquote. Diversity of punishments makes no difference. As long as they punish crimes in general, quote, all laws tend toward the same end, unquote. For example, quote, against adultery, some nations levy severer, others lighter punishments, unquote. But this, quote, diversity, unquote, is perfect in Calvin's view because some nations need harsher penalties for some crimes than others. God's law, the moral element, is still maintained as long as crime is punished, no matter how it is punished. Thus, the mosaic demand for punishments that strictly fit the crime is thrown out, along with Moses' definitions of what those strictly just penalties must be. Thus, again, for example, if theft or false witness are punished harshly with capital punishment, instead of as prescribed in the Bible, Calvin can be perfectly fine with it. The editor of Calvin's Modern Editions notes, however, the true source of Calvin's thinking here. His discussion of diverse penalties here is not based on, upon biblical exegesis, but based on studies in Justinian and commentaries on other pagan statesmen, especially Seneca. Based upon these Roman sources, also, Calvin upheld the practice of civil punishments for religious offenses. Civil government, he taught, quote, prevents idolatry, sacrilege against God's name, blasphemies against his truth, and other public offenses against religion, unquote. In the last edition, he expanded and defended his view, again revealing its pagan background. He argues that, quote, if Scripture did not teach that the magistrate's duty extends to both tables of the law, we could learn it from secular writers, unquote. But he gives no place at all to demonstrate his views from Scripture. He only gives us a natural law view. Among these, quote, secular writers, unquote, no one has discussed the office of magistrates, the making of laws, and public welfare without beginning at religion and divine worship. And thus all have confessed that no government can be happily established unless piety is the first concern, since therefore among all philosophers religion takes first place. And since this fact has always been observed by universal consent of all nations, let Christian princes and magistrates be ashamed of their negligence if they do not apply themselves to this concern. It is folly, Calvin argues, that rulers should focus only on justice among men, for the purity of worship is of far greater importance. It was a theme common since at least Aquinas that it is better to punish men in the body in order to save their souls from themselves or to protect society from their heresies. Calvin added a description of anarchist terrorism. If we do not stamp out these vile, false worshipers, they will overturn society and run out the only people who could stop them. Quote, the passion to alter everything with impunity drives turbulent men to the point of wanting all vindicators of violated piety removed from their midst, unquote. Thus you can see that Calvin offers a little altered version of Justinian all over again and shows no difference at all from both his Catholic and Lutheran contemporaries. 
Indeed, the famed execution of Servetus was merely finishing a job Roman Catholics had started. Calvin supplied documents to the Catholic Inquisition, which had arrested Servetus in line. Soon after, Servetus escaped that fate by escaping prison. He was arrested in Geneva. There, he was executed with approbation from Geneva, Rome, and Wittenberg alike, after Calvin. The precedent, however, began to change in a few instances. Some second-generation reformers began taking the restrictions of Mosaic law more seriously. One impetus for this may well have been the conversion of a Jewish convert and Hebraist named Emmanuel Tremelius, along with his colleague Franciscus Junius at Heidelberg. Tremelius argued that the Mosaic judicial laws were binding in large part, and thus rulers were beholden to limit penalties for theft, etc., to what was revealed in Moses. This view would have been perceived as lenient and perhaps even liberal at the time when Roman law prevailed and rulers could and did punish crimes as ruthlessly as they liked. These two scholars influenced another, the aforementioned Joannes Piscator, whose version of the argument became the most famous, lasting clear into the American Puritan era. Piscator was referenced on this issue directly by some of the Westminster divines, notably George Gillespie. A couple comments are in order, however. The view of each of these three post-Calvin, quote, theonomist, unquote, maintained the first table penalties. In this, they were congruent with the Roman-based practice of the day and thus found no controversy. I believe they were wrong in this regard. Nevertheless, they spearheaded the argument that the civil rulers were also bound and limited to the punishments outlined for the second table. This improvement upon the tyrannies of the era was biblically correct and therefore laudable. The Covenanters we are now in a position to consider the, quote, Covenanters, unquote, who eventually made up much of the Westminster Assembly and produced its famous documents. The first thing we have to note is that they were mixed on this issue. There is no monolithic, quote, Covenanter, unquote, view. The majority were of the establishment view descended from Justinian. Mosaic judicial law is no longer binding, and princes can punish crime however they see fit but they nevertheless have a natural law duty to punish religious offenses. George Gillespie and a few others tempered their views with Piscator, and thus bound the civil government in second-table offenses, but not in first. Even theologians who acknowledged the contributions of Piscator, who divided between those judicial laws which pertained only to Israel and are thus abrogated, and those judicials which were universal, nevertheless, disagreed over where the lines were drawn. For example, William Perkins followed Piscator's distinction, but argued in part that the way to tell whether a particular punishment was still binding or not was if pagan nations had also arrived at the same punishment for that crime in the past. In this arrangement, Perkins particularly praised, wait for it, the Roman emperors. The celebrated Samuel Rutherford leaned more toward Calvin's view. He argued that first-table offenses must be punished, but that the Mosaic judicial punishments were not binding. In a work specifically intended to prove that a Christian government should not allow, quote, liberty of conscience, unquote, Rutherford unbridled the power of the state in regard to penalties. 
He argued that stoning blasphemers was, quote, necessary civil use, unquote. He even argued that the Canaanite wars specially commanded to Joshua were based on natural law and could be copied somehow today, just not in the full extermination of women and children. Nevertheless, he repudiated the need for the judicial standards of Moses elsewhere, meaning the binding of the state, and suggests that pagan penalties could be used. He then reveals his theological foundations for such a low view of the judicials. Aquinas, along with the Jesuit theologian from Salamanca, Francisco Suarez, in the end, only a handful of the Covenanters actually took Mosaic law any more seriously than a biblical cover for why they should continue the old Roman heritage, though they would never have admitted it in those terms. In general, they used Moses when they liked, but their practice was based upon Roman precedents of so-called natural law, punishments defined freely by the state as the rulers saw fit, and a desire to be those rulers making the decisions. They wished for nothing more than speedily to depose the Anglo-Catholic tyrants in the seats of power, except perhaps to ascend to those seats themselves. They aimed to leave the civil powers just as they were, except to change the targets of religious punishments. It was for this reason that when the English Civil War briefly resulted in Covenanter ascendancy, but with no apparent reduction in tyranny, John Milton penned a sonnet calling out Rutherford, Anthony Stewart, and Thomas Edwards by name. He observed that they had merely seized power, quote, from them whose sin ye envied, not abhorred, unquote, and continued to use the sword in an attempt to coerce men's consciences. Milton, certainly representing the Westminster dissenting party as a whole, condemned these covenanters of plots, quote, worse than those of Trent, unquote, and ridiculing them as Pharisees. He ended by immortalizing covenanter polity in stark irony. Quote, New Presbyter is but old priest writ large, unquote. And he was right. There was no difference in the powers of the state these covenanters desired to run than what Constantine had transposed from Diocletian's edicts and the classical imperial cult death penalties. All throughout history, these religious punishments had been the legacy of Roman civil law and had been argued and cited directly as such over and over. They had been passed down throughout Roman legal history as powers arising from natural law. Even many of the Reformed Baptists of the era believed in the Roman establishment principle, yet marginalized Mosaic judicial law in their later confession. In a 1659 declaration, they defended themselves against the charge that they believed in religious tolerance. Nor do we desire, in matters of religion, that popery should be tolerated, or any persons tolerated that worship a false god, nor any that speak contemptuously and reproachfully of our Lord Jesus Christ, nor any that deny the Holy Scriptures contained in the books of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God. And this non-toleration, they said explicitly, should be, quote, in matters civil, unquote. Conclusion The modern Covenanter reenactors, as well as certain other Presbyterians romanticizing the original Westminster Confession, who wish to appropriate that term, quote, theonomy, unquote, for themselves simply have things upside down. 
Biblical law has transferred first table punishments from earthly civil governments to the throne of heaven, but it upholds as highly as ever the laws of justice that bind the power of the state, require just contracts and sound money, forbid false arrest and prosecutions, prescribe wars of intervention, fiat financing and national debt, socialism and welfareism. In short, biblical law is about liberty and prosperity in Christ. Would-be covenanters, however, affirm a model in which, if maintained consistently, the state is unrestrained in nearly all respects. It is given the power to punish non-Christian worship even up to the death penalty, and yet does not require the state to be bound by strict standards of justice on second-table offenses. The state can be creative, and a creative state is a dangerous and deadly state. In fact, I do not see how much a standard could not be used to justify even the oppressive prison system we have today. Police and prosecutorial abuses are much worse. This is not biblical law. It is the opposite of liberty on all fronts. It would be nothing less than the Constantinian tradition unleashed all over again we perhaps ought to reflect back upon Durant's acknowledgment of the Christian triumph over Diocletian and Galerius, yet before Constantine. There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians, scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar had met Christ in the arena, and Christ had won. All that was needed to defeat Caesar was the word of God, preached and lived consistently, and a demand for justice and liberty. In truth, it was the Spirit of God. The stone cut out without hand smashed the statue of Nebuchadnezzar on its Roman feet, and brought the whole crashing down. And it did so without first-table penalties and powers. Only the power of the Holy Spirit inspiring courage, patience, and faithfulness. What is needed more than anything today is for the pulpits to return to preaching the full scope of God's justice, and for the body of Christ to uphold that standard to all of culture. With such faithfulness and courage today, we could once again watch the would-be Caesars of the world fail and the edifice of statism of tyranny crumble with them. We do not need another Constantine. We need spirit-filled theonomy in the pulpits and in the hearts and minds of every Christian. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit 
reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.